This is a work of fiction. Honest. Ragbag presents Brollywood, episode one. Written and performed by Frank Burton. Welcome one and all to this brand new version of the Ragbag podcast. Listen to the introductory episode if you'd like a full explanation of this new format and how it works. If you can't be bothered to listen to that, let me just say once again, welcome. I'm going to be telling you a story over the next ten weeks. Is it ten parts? I haven't quite figured that out yet. Maybe it's ten, maybe it's more, maybe it's less. The story is called Brollywood. And when the series is over, I'm going to release the whole thing as a book. There'll be an audiobook version too. But for listeners of this podcast, there's a whole bunch of exclusive content. At the end of each episode, we have the footnotes section, which won't be included in any other versions of this story. This is an extra little something for the podcast listeners where we get together after this week's instalment of the story and have a bit of a chat about stuff. Yeah? More on that later. Let's crack straight on with Brollywood. Episode 1 I met Noddy on my first day in prison. This was 2005. Up until this point in my life, I'd had the luxury of never having to imagine what prison might be like. I'd spent more time wondering what the surface of Mars looked like close up. Whatever vague assumptions I'd had about the place were wrong. The building was very clean for a start. So many shiny surfaces. I didn't find this reassuring. During my guided tour of the wing, I started to feel like a rat in a lab. I made a mental note not to say any of this out loud to anyone. I may have been new to all this, but I suspected it was a bad idea to refer to myself as a rat on my first day inside. The place was strangely quiet too. Where were all the menacing whoops and hollers I'd grown to expect from one too many prison movies? This didn't reassure me either. The silence of the place was chilling. The guard led me into my cell, in which a vacant-looking bald man was sitting on a chair in a corner, staring into space. This is Noddy, said the guard. The guard nodded at Noddy, and Noddy nodded back. He doesn't talk, the guard explained. He nods, hence the name. I was reluctant to say anything myself, and so... I nodded at Noddy, and Noddy nodded at me. I'd been clenched up, trying my best not to tremble since entering the building. As soon as Noddy nodded at me, somehow it eased all of that tension, almost to the point of regular anxiety. So this was the guy I'd be sharing a cell with. An old man who was so unthreatening he wasn't even going to speak to me. I managed to say, nice to meet you Noddy. I may have even smiled for the first time that day. The guard left me alone with Noddy. We sat together in total silence for three hours. Then it was dinner time. The cell door was opened and we stepped into the corridor. At that moment, one of our fellow inmates was walking past. Once upon a time, I'd imagined everyone in prison looked like this man. Scars, facial tattoos, missing teeth an expression that suggested he could kill at any moment. The man noticed the expression on my face 
and in what was clearly a knee-jerk reaction, a force of habit perhaps, he swerved his head in my direction. It was a clear intimidation tactic, or it would have been, had it not been cut short. Halfway through the head swerve, the man noticed Noddy standing next to me. As soon as he realised Noddy and I were sharing a cell, the man straightened himself up and continued walking without looking back. In the two seconds it took for this exchange to take place, I learned a lot about my new cellmate. In spite of being the least scary person I'd ever met, this man had the power to neutralise a psycho in the space of a heartbeat. Who was he, exactly? What was his real name? Why didn't he speak? At least one of these questions was answered a few days later, when, in the middle of the night, Noddy suddenly started talking to me. Say what you like about people in here, he said. Call them uneducated if you like, but it's likely the vast majority of them went to school. They must have. Have you ever met a man who never went to school, not for a single day in his life? Well, I don't think so, I said. You have now, said Noddy. Let me tell you. From that point on, it was hard to keep him quiet. Not that I was irritated by his sudden personality change. Far from it. In our six months in that cell together, Noddy told me some of the best stories I'd ever heard. I'll tell you some of them shortly. But first, I should mention what happened next. Noddy was released from prison a couple of weeks after me. He helped me out with a few things. Then, he had a heart attack and died in front of me. Just before he died, he took something out of his pocket, a small clickable device, some kind of panic button. I called an ambulance, but before the ambulance arrived, a van pulled up outside. Some men broke the door down, carried him off. That was the last I saw of him for 15 years. I'd always had my suspicions. Noddy's apparent death was almost as strange as the fact of his existence. Then, in May 2020, I discovered that Noddy wasn't dead. Then I discovered something even stranger than that. More on that later. In March 2020, I was staying in a campsite in North Yorkshire, in the camper van that had been my home since the previous summer. I'd never properly analysed my reasons for moving out of my conventional accommodation, but up until that point, it wasn't a decision I'd had chance to regret. The fact of the matter was... I'd managed to make a living from doing my podcast, which was possible to do from anywhere with an internet connection. I'd been staying at this particular site for a week or so, minding my own business, taking walks in the hills when it wasn't raining, and working on my book, getting away with it. There weren't many other people around, but one woman kept catching my attention. She was staying with five or six friends, all pitched up together in a large tent, a little way from my van. They were noisy at night time, which didn't bother me much. They were just people having a good time. In any case, I couldn't hear them with my headphones in. I chatted to this woman a few times. She introduced herself as Glinda. Ah, like the good witch of the north, I said. Sorry, I added, you've probably heard that a thousand times. I don't know what that means, she said. Good witch of the north, I said. Your name's Glinda, and you've never heard that reference before. I'm actually from the south, so... Wizard of Oz, I said. Oh, I see, she said. I've never seen it. I stopped myself from saying, yeah, but, and changed the subject to something less controversial. The following evening, she saw me sitting outside the van on my deck chair and came over to sit with me. 
Literally, she squeezed right in next to me on the chair. What's that you're reading? She said. It's a notebook, I said. I'm a writer. Ooh, she said, patting me on the leg. I realise you're a little intoxicated, I said, but I'm not sure this chair was designed for two people. Intoxicated, she repeated playfully. What a brilliant word. Also, rather difficult to say when intoxicated. Speaking of intoxication, do you have any booze to hand? Join me. I've got a couple of bottles of wine in the van, I said. Nice, she said. You here on your own? Yes. Easiest to write that way, I suppose. What are you working on? Glinda made a grab for my notebook, but I clutched it to my chest. I'm working on a book, I said, but this isn't it. This is just a jokey thing myself and a friend have been working on lately. I like jokes, she said. Let me see. It's not really a joke, I said. It's actually very serious. We're planning a bank heist. Not a real one, a hypothetical one, just to prove that we could do it if we wanted to. Well, who's this friend of yours? Oh, just some guy, you won't know him. He comes to visit me sometimes. Where does he come to visit you? Here, in the van. Not necessarily in this location. Oh, so you move around in the van, do you? Yeah, it's got wheels and everything. I mean, you live in this thing. Yup. Wow. That realisation suddenly seemed to sober Glinda up. I cracked the wine open, I said. There's some slightly more comfortable seating inside, unless you need to get back to your friends. Oh, they're doing my head in, she said. I'll stick with you. What did you say your name was? Frank. Pleased to meet you, Frank. Have you never really seen The Wizard of Oz? I said. No, but I appreciate your frustration on this matter. I'm constantly saying things like that to people. Have you seriously never heard songs of the key of life? And so it goes on. Ah, I said thoughtfully. I'm not sure if I have got through a full Stevie Wonder album. You got me there. You have to see The Wizard of Oz, though, right now. I've got the video. Video? She said. Yes, VHS. They still work, you know. Stick it in the machine and press play. I can see you're a real 20th century boy, she said, with your camper van and your paper and pen and your VHS. I have a podcast, too, I blurted out defensively. Don't we all? She said. What, you got one, too? Of course. She said, as I say, doesn't everyone? It's lots of fun, I suppose. Not that anyone's listening, of course, but how can they be? They're too busy recording their own podcasts. I'm not entirely sure that's true. Really? You know what they're doing right now, over there in that tent? You can probably hear us at night, laughing at our own jokes and shouting over top of each other. Oh, I thought you were just people having a good time. Nope. The worst thing is... They all think they're mavericks because they record the whole thing in a tent. It's called the tent cast. Look it up. It's diabolical. Why do you do it then? Oh, I just got roped into it, if you pardon the possible pun. You make a very good use of language there, Glinda. You should do something creative with it, even if podcasting turns out not to be your bag. I'll think about it, she said. Come on, let's get inside and watch this awful film of yours. It's not awful, it's a classic. We went inside. I opened the wine and we sat together on my mini couch and watched The Wizard of Oz. We woke up in bed together the following morning. Morning, she said. God, I said. I'm Glinda, she said. But yes, I often give out the impression of godliness. 
You're really beautiful, I said, as though I'd just realised. Thanks, she said. I'm really sorry, I said, but I have absolutely no memory of what happened last night. I'm sure you're extremely memorable under normal circumstances, but... To be fair, you did have quite a lot to drink, Frank. Like, how much? There's the two bottles of wine over here, she said. I was drunk already, so you literally had both bottles to yourself. Then we went over to the tent. We did what? I said. We went to join my friends. It was your idea. That doesn't sound like me. After two bottles of wine? Okay, in that case it kind of sounds like me. There's documentary evidence if you'd like to hear it. Oh my god, really? They've probably put the whole thing out already. That's what they do. They don't bother editing. They don't even listen back. I already had my phone out and was typing in the name of their show, which somehow I've managed to recall. Sure enough, Tentcast episode 456 had been published five hours previously. The file was five and a half hours long. What exactly is Tentcast about? I said. Oh, this is a genius thing, said Glinda, ramping up the sarcasm. It's not about anything. It's anything goes. We'll just talk and see what comes out, because no one's ever thought of that before. They honestly think they're going to be millionaires, somehow, someday. Even though no one's listening. Even though they don't even bother listening back. Too busy working on the next one. It's, it's sad. Do I really want to be listening to this? I said. Oh, don't listen to the whole thing, she said. We turned up about 1am, which I guess would be about three hours into the recording. Fast forward to that bit. I have a feeling it's going to be embarrassing, I said. You were actually very funny and eloquent considering how drunk you were. She kissed me. I realised at this point that Glinda and I were still lying in a single bed together without any clothes on. We had sex. Then I jumped out of bed, wrapped the blanket around my waist, opened the door and vomited violently onto the grass. That wasn't a reaction to what just happened. I said when I came inside. I know, she said. She was dressed again, already. Can I make you some breakfast, I said. I can make a mean slice of toast. Can you really? Well, to be fair, it's just a regular slice of toast, but it's made with the expert precision of a man who knows how to work a toaster. You know your way around a lot of things said Glinda with a faint hint of flirtatious enthusiasm, although it was clear that whatever spark had existed between us had snuffed itself out when I hurled my guts up. It's a yes, please, to the toast, she added. I put my clothes on before making ever toast. I pressed play on episode 456 of Tentcast and skipped to three hours in. The podcast was pretty much as Glinda had described, a bunch of people talking over each other and laughing at their own jokes. One of them had a slightly louder voice than the rest and he was ranting on about raiders being better than Temple of Doom or something along those lines. Then there was a big chorus of cheers as the door was unzipped. I heard my own voice jabbering away in the background with Glinda chuckling along beside me. Without even introducing myself, I launched into a rather bizarre interpretation of The Wizard of Oz as some kind of universal state that existed within all of our minds on a subconscious level. Someone said, do you like it then? 
I said, I'm not sure if that's the question to ask. It's a bit like saying, do you like carbon dioxide? I mean, yeah, sure, it's all part of the air we breathe and we need it just as much as we need the oxygen. I don't see why oxygen gets all the credit for keeping us alive when we drop dead if we were deprived of the carbon dioxide in the air. Is that right? Someone else said. That's absolutely true, someone else said. Anyway, I said, we got sidetracked. I was talking about the Wizard of Oz, and this is Glinda, the Witch of the North. She's uh, from the South, actually, someone else said. Have none of you people seen the Wizard of Oz? I snapped. I thought this was a universal thing, not just in our collective unconscious, but in our, you know, the opposite of that, the individual, uh, you know, uh, conscious. I haven't actually seen it, if that's what you mean, said the guy who had been shouting about Indiana Jones. But if it's anything like Temple of Doom... The guy rambled on for a while until I got properly into the spirit of things and interrupted him with a change of subject. I rambled on myself for a while about my bank heist plans. At some point it became clear that my friend who I'd been planning the heist with was the actor Benedict Cumberbatch. That's hardly just some guy, as you call him, Glinda cut in. To be fair, I've called him worse than that, I said. Also... I never really know whether people have heard of him or not. Come on, everyone's heard of Benedict Cumberbatch, you must know that. I'm just not all that in tune with the whole fame thing, I said. There are things like The Wizard of Oz, which I assume everyone knows about. Then there are people like Benedict, who I assume is just a guy that I know. Then it turns out he's this big movie star. I honestly thought he was exaggerating. While I was listening to this recording, a sudden memory of these events popped into my head. I remembered one of the podcasters was checking their phone to see if they could find Benedict's Instagram account, presumably because if what I'd said was correct, there'd be a few selfies of the two of us. But Benedict doesn't use social media, so they ended up scrolling through a bunch of press photos that other people have posted on Instagram, and somehow the fact that I didn't feature in these press photographs meant that I wasn't Benedict's friend. I heard my own reaction playing back on the recording. You're not going to find a picture of me and him on the internet. I said there aren't any. When I refused to have my picture taken with him, he drew a watercolour portrait of the two of us. It's actually very good. His management wouldn't let him release it online, however, because it reveals a little too much of himself. Why, is he naked in the picture? No, but he's... You know, it's complicated. Benedict and I have a complicated relationship. It's difficult to sum it up, really. It's nice to have someone who loves you so much that they take it upon themselves to paint a picture of the two of you together. But at the same time, it's a bit too much for me, and I kind of have to keep him at arm's length for that reason. Oh, don't get me wrong, he's not sexually attracted to me as far as I know. He's a happily married man. I think, in Benedict's mind, I kind of represent something that he could never be. He's from quite a privileged background, privately educated, all of that stuff. His parents are both actors. In a way, success for him was inevitable. Maybe that's why he's so fascinated with me, a guy who, by comparison, is a commercial failure. But because of that, I'm free to do whatever I want, artistically speaking. Also, he's reached that level within show business where literally everyone he meets tells him how great he is. It's possible that I'm the only person who doesn't do that. I insult him quite a lot, not on purpose necessarily. 
I just talk to him the same way that I talk to everyone else. Sounds strange to say, but I think Benedict enjoys my company because I'm the one person who doesn't suck up to him. Yeah, keep on dreaming, pal, someone said. Listen, I said, I'll get him on the phone if I have to. He doesn't usually appreciate being woken up at this time of night, although that being said, he did mention being in New Zealand at the moment, so it's probably mid-afternoon over there. Tell them about the bank heist. Glinda's voice chirped in the background. I can't tell them about the bank heist, I said. It's a closely guarded secret. Well, it isn't really, but I'm not sure Benedict's PR guys will like the idea of me blurting it all out. There's written evidence of it, that's all I'm saying. I've got all the details in the van with me. You just have to keep on guessing. You're going to call him then or what? Said the Indiana Jones fan. I don't fancy splashing out on an international call, thanks. He's probably in the middle of a shoot anyway. He's there for work. I'll be more than happy to pay. Tap the number in there. Suddenly, I remember the guy thrusting his phone into my hand. In the background, someone was googling the international dialing code and dictated it to me. In the recording, you can actually hear me saying Benedict's mobile number out loud as I dialed it. The recording went silent for a few seconds. Then my voice said, All right, mate. Sorry. Yes, mate. Yes, I am very drunk. Thanks for noticing. Listen, I'm going to stick you on speaker. And I don't know. I've met some people who don't believe the two of us know each other. And this is my petty attempt to prove them wrong. So, right. There. You're on speaker. Say something, mate. Hello? Benedict's distorted voice popped through the speaker. Say something else, someone called. Okay, said Benedict's voice. Uh, something else? Say a famous line from one of your films, Indiana Jones' boy demanded. Oh, said Benedict. Oh, now you've got me stumped. I've never quite figured out which are the famous lines and which ones are just lines. How about, I could have done better, someone said. That should do it. My voice could be heard up close to the mic, laughing hysterically. Sorry, Benedict, I said. I didn't realise there were going to be hecklers. It's from Doctor Strange, they said. That's literally just random words to me, I said. I remember that one, said Benedict's voice. I could have done better. A round of applause followed. Hang on a minute, that's not even your real voice, I protested amidst the rabble. We have so many questions, declared Indiana Jones boy. No, you don't, I said. This was literally just to verify this man's identity. Now that's done, let's let him go. At least let him tell us about the bank heist, Glinda called out. Frank, said Benedict, what the hell have you told these people? Nothing, mate, it's banter. Take me off speaker. I need to know what's been said. Nothing, mate, absolutely nothing. Chill out. Oh, it's not a regular bank, though, is it, Benedict? Said Glinda, moving closer to the mic. It's a private bank, right? That's the intriguing thing. I have to go, said Benedict, and ended the call. I listened to a few moments of muffled mumbling from the group. Then, having heard enough, I turned the podcast off. Oh dear, I said quietly. It's okay, said Glinda brightly. Trust me, we literally have no listeners. I don't think anyone has said anything incriminating anyway. You're right, I said. 
Benedict finds this sort of thing embarrassing, that's all. He's probably forgotten about it now. He wouldn't have known it was being recorded. Glynna munched on her toast thoughtfully. It's fine, she said. Makes a good story. Just don't go spreading it around, I said seriously. Not the fact that Benedict and me are friends, that's hardly controversial. Just the bank heist stuff. My lips are sealed, she said. I've already forgotten about it. But for the record, I think it's pretty cool. I agree. Glinda stared at the blank wall for a while. Listen, she said, we're heading off today. Okay, I said. I'm a bit worried about you, Frank. We've all got homes to go to. How are you going to carry on living in this van with everything that's going on? What do you mean? You haven't seen the news lately. I haven't seen the news since about 1997, I said. You might need to fill me in. You must have heard about it, though. All this talk about lockdowns. What does that mean? COVID-19, she said. Does that ring any bells? No, it doesn't, I said. Look it up, she said. What's it called? It's all over the news, Frank. Just look at the BBC or whatever. It'd be the main story. We spent the next ten minutes sitting in silence while Glinda finished off her toast and I looked at my phone. Uh, I see what you mean, I said. I suppose this makes me homeless then. Exactly, she said. You can't carry on living here. They'll be shutting all the campsites down. You don't even have your own toilet. Is there somewhere you can go? Family you can stay with? Not really, I said quietly. Parents, she said. My dad's not around anymore, I said, and I'd rather stay here than ask my mother for help. Nobody else? Friends? I have the old friend kicking around, but no one I'd want to see on a daily basis. Benedict's out of the country. Is there nobody else? Well, my Uncle Claude would definitely help me out. He'd have space for me too, it's just... Just Uncle Claude. Why would I voluntarily go and live with Uncle Claude? He can't be that bad. You haven't met him. You'd have a roof over your head at least. Is he really that bad? To be fair, I said, there is nothing wrong with him. It's just the dynamic isn't quite right. I hope I don't sound like too much of a diva. Put yourself in my shoes here, Glinda. Imagine having to move in with your annoying, creepy, overbearing uncle, who technically is just a regular person with no sinister side whatsoever. I understand, she said. He gets on your nerves. That's family for you. It's Claude I'd be worried about, I said. I'd end up strangling him. You might just have to put up with him if he's your best option. Let's put it this way, I said. The only reason I still speak to my Uncle Claude is because he happens to be my dad's brother. If I'd met him under any other circumstances, the two of us would not have been friends. But as things stand, he's the only member of my family I'm still in touch with. As I say, said Glinda, that's the way things go with families. Wait until you hear about how Claude feels about me. Ah, uh, not his favourite nephew then? The opposite, I said. Claude loves me with all of his heart. He's the only person in this world who's ever loved me unconditionally. Claude wishes that I was his son and not his useless brothers. He wishes he could be a father to me in the way my dad never was. How am I supposed to respond to all of this 
unrequited love isn't just for star-crossed lovers. It's much more complicated than that. I understand, said Glinda. Really? Well, I get the general idea, anyway. So what do you suggest? I said. I suggest moving in with me. I've got the space, too. Um, isn't it a little bit early, you know, in our relationship? Let's not say relationship, she said. Let's say friendship. A smile jumped onto my face, surprising my nose and eyes. I'd love to be friends with you, I said. Are you sure about this? Definitely, she said. You're a friend in need. And that makes you a, um, how does it go? A friend indeed, I said. Yeah, that's the one. Glinda lived about 50 miles away, in a town I'd never heard of. She said goodbye to her friends and sat beside me in the van as we drove to our new home. Somewhere along the way she mentioned having a housemate. Are you sure there's room for me? There's a whole spare room available, she said. Glinda's housemate didn't seem too pleased to see me. He shook my hand politely and introduced himself as Jamie. He didn't return my smile. So where's this guy staying, Glinda? he said. His name's Frank, she said. He's a writer. Show him some respect. OK, where's Frank going to stay? In the spare room. Where am I going to stay? I was thinking the couch or your parents' house. I really don't want to impose. I said, I can sleep in the van. I didn't realise there wasn't a bed. Why doesn't he just sleep in our room with you? Jamie snapped and stormed out into the backyard. Uh, I said. Sorry, she said. I should have explained. Jamie's your boyfriend. He was. We're going our separate ways once we've sold this place. This lockdown business is probably going to make that whole thing a lot harder. Maybe. It'll just be for a few weeks though, won't it? You reckon? Well, I spent ten minutes skim reading a couple of BBC News articles, so yeah, I'm an expert on all this stuff. She laughed. <laughs> this is fun, she said. It'll be fun having you around. Jamie will be alright. Or he'll just go off and live with his parents. I've dropped the hint enough times. Jamie stormed back in. He said, I'll clear that room out for you, Frank. Won't take me long. Then you can get settled in. Glinda's got the Wi-Fi codes. Thanks, I said. I appreciate it. Once the room was sorted, I spent a few hours sitting on a chair by the bed, staring at the wall. I realised it was 10pm and I hadn't eaten since breakfast. Downstairs, I found Jamie sitting on the couch watching TV. Do you know if there's a place nearby I can get some food? I said. Well, there's some chilli left over in the kitchen, he said. Pretty good, even if I say so myself. I don't suppose it's vegan friendly, I said hopefully. Not unless vegans have started eating beef, he said. Sorry. That's okay, I said. My rule is, I'll eat non-vegan food when there's nothing else available. It winds the vegans up, but that's my policy. Sounds pretty reasonable. Help yourself, mate. Oh, and there's some beers in the fridge too. Excellent. I sat with Jamie for a while, watching TV, eating chilli and drinking beer. It was good chilli. It was good beer. Jamie was good company too. We got talking about music, 
bands that we liked, gigs that we'd been to. It turned out Jamie had been to Glastonbury in 2000. We'd been at the same crowd watching Bowie. I'm actually a Bowie obsessive, he said, which is weird because Bowie doesn't quite fit in with the stuff I usually listen to, but, you know, he's the ultimate example of what I like to call the hula hoop principle. Oh, sounds interesting. I think so. What is it? Oh, the hula hoop principle. Sorry, I was just singing Diamond Dogs in my head and it distracted me. First of all, I said, what kind of hula hoops are you referring to here? The crisps or the thing itself? Oh, the actual hula hoop. The big plastic thing. Exactly. Everyone knows what a hula hoop is, right? Walk into any toy shop in the land, you'll see hula hoops for sale. It's perceived as being a girl thing, so they're mostly coloured pink or with sparkly bits on. So a large proportion of parents of little girls will, at some point, spot one of these big sparkly plastic rings. Or they'll think, oh, a hula hoop. She's going to love that. So they'll buy one, their little girl. They'll take it home. The little girl will have a little go at playing on it. She'll try spinning it around on her middle. At least nine times out of ten, the girl will say, I can't do it. Abandon the toy, never play with it again. Of the 10% of girls who can actually do the hula hoop trick, 9 out of 10 of them will do the trick for a while, get bored, then abandon the toy and never play with it again. So now we're left with just 1% of hula hoop consumers. This 1% will really take to playing with their hula hoop. Maybe they'll persuade their parents to purchase a second and third hula hoop. So they can spin all three of them at once. Maybe they'll join a local hula hooping club for a while if they can find one. Eventually most of these hula hoop enthusiasts will get bored. They'll grow a little bigger. One day they'll wake up and decide that hula hooping is a thing for little girls. They're not a little girl anymore. But again, there's that one girl in ten who carries on doing it. She'll purchase a fourth, fifth and sixth hula hoop with her own money. She'll enter hula hooping championships. Hula hooping will be her thing and she'll hang around with the rest of what's now 0.1% of hula hooping consumers. They'll talk about other things but mostly they'll talk about hula hooping because hula hooping is their thing. Jamie took a breath. What I'm saying is, he said, David Bowie's a bit like that. How do you mean... I said, I mean, everyone knows who David Bowie is, right? Well, maybe not everyone, obviously. I guess most 15-year-olds aren't fully aware of him. But anyone our age, right? Even if they're not that familiar with his music, they'll recognise Space Oddity or Heroes if they heard it, or at least they'll have seen Labyrinth. They'll have passively listened to his songs via TV and radio, even if they couldn't correctly identify the artist himself, a certain proportion of the population have actively purchased Bowie's music at some point, either because they're from the generations that used to buy records or because they've added into a playlist of some kind. So let's say 90% of those people thought the album they bought was okay and they listened to it a couple of times. You see where I'm going with this? Oh, I do indeed, I said. So who do we have left? 10% of people who've actively pursued Bowie's music who think it's more than okay. A lot of them think it's great. They'd be happy to purchase a concert ticket. They'll go and watch him live. 
9 out of 10 people who do this will have a great time. And that will be that. There's another item crossed off their ever-expanding bucket list. They've been to a David Bowie gig. They won't need to do that again. They probably won't think about David Bowie very much after that. But then there's the 1 in 10 for whom attending a David Bowie gig will be an experience of almost religious significance. Bear in mind we've now reached the 0.1% of people who've actively engaged with Bowie's music, which in terms of the general population is an even lower percentage, significantly lower. This very, very small minority of people, they're the ones who'll have purchased all of Bowie's albums on vinyl. Some of them even invested in Tim Machine for the sake of completion. They've been to every single concert they can logistically attend. Some of them, and I'll raise my hand at this point, will buy tickets to a festival purely because Bowie happens to be headlining. And there we have it. That is the hula hoop principle. I almost spat my beer out in excitement at this point. I clapped my hands together, swallowed, and took a breath. <sighs> That's brilliant, I said. You're totally right, man. But then, I suppose, it doesn't quite explain how so many people describe Bowie as being one of the world's greatest artists, when only a relatively tiny number of people actually feel that way about him. That is the power of the superfan, said Jamie. Once you've got superfans, you've got it made. Most artists just have regular fans who are valuable from a commercial point of view to the extent that they might pay money to download one of your albums or if you're lucky they'll come to one of your gigs. You've made a few quid there but that's it. There's the possibility that this regular fan will mention you casually in conversation to someone else at some point which may or may not lead to the recipient of that casual recommendation to become an equally regular fan. But a superfan, that's a different beast entirely. A superfan is worth a million regular fans. A superfan won't mention you casually in conversation. You will be their chief conversational topic. A lot of the time. Any excuse to mention you, they will. And before you know it, you're being quoted by people who've never even heard of you before. If you spend enough time in a superfan's company, you... Become a de facto fan yourself, purely because of the level of exposure you've received just standing next to the superfan. And so it goes on. This process won't lead to many more superfans being created. These people only account for a tiny proportion of the population after all. But their existence leads to a steady growth in, what did I just call it? De facto fans. That's it. That's exactly what I meant to say. That's brilliant, I said. I know exactly what you mean. I'm a de facto fan of tons of different things. I've never read a HP Lovecraft book all the way through, but I've met so many people who are nuts about Lovecraft. I feel as though he's one of my favourite authors, even though I couldn't even name one of his novels. It's how legends are made, said Jamie. Like, how many people who wore all those Che Guevara t-shirts had a full understanding of who the guy actually was? Very few, I guess. His face ended up as an anti-establishment emblem, or whatever it was. Not because of anything he actually did, but because he had a cult-like following. I suppose that's how religions start as well. So you're saying Jesus had the hula hoop factor? 100% you've read the Bible, right? How many followers did that guy have in his lifetime? Like proper hardcore fans. 
I believe it was 12, I said. Exactly, he said. Maybe that's all you need. Just 12 people who care about your work enough to do a whole bunch of unpaid PR work on your behalf and you've got it made. I'd like to be able to disagree with you, I said, because it sounds kind of ludicrous, but you're absolutely right. Take the Bowie set we both saw at Glastonbury. I would guess a large percentage of the crowd that night were de facto fans. Definitely, he said. I'd say I was one of the very few people who specifically bought a ticket to that festival because Bowie was headlining. Most of them would have been there anyway. Funny thing is, I said, my dad was there too. I didn't find out until years later. I never really knew my dad. We lived in the same house, but he was rarely around. It turned out he had this whole secret life outside of the family. He went to Glastonbury on his own. I think he was happier by himself, you know. I feel that way too most of the time. I think it's why I've ended up living in a van. It's nice to make these kind of connections, isn't it? said Jamie. Personally, I love it when I meet a new person and I discover that they were in the same place as me at the same time, like we've done tonight. I suppose finding out your dad was at the Bowie gig adds that extra level of weird. The best part, I said, is that he enjoyed the experience so much he scooped up some of the mud he was standing on, stuck it in a glass jar and took it home with him, kept it in the house for years. Really? That's actually pretty cool. You could probably sell that for decent money now. I would if it was still there, I said. My mum cleared all my dad's stuff out after he disappeared. Disappeared? We had a few more beers and I shared the story of my dad's disappearance and everything that happened afterwards. I'd recently finished writing Everything I Am, which covers that whole story, so the subject was still fresh in my mind. It felt good to talk to someone about it. I talked about Noddy quite a lot too. Jamie seemed fascinated by him. I didn't blame him. As a writer, it's handy to have met someone like Noddy, I said, because Noddy can tell me a story and I can just write it down. I don't need to bother using my imagination or anything. I'm just repeating what Noddy said. Have you actually done that? said Jamie. Have you written Noddy's stories down? A couple of them, yes, I said. There's hundreds more but it's never felt like the right time to do it. Some of these stories are so unbelievable, I don't think I could get away with claiming they actually happened. But you're a fiction writer, right? So why not just use those stories as the basis for a novel? I don't know, that feels like a cop-out somehow. I shared a cell with this guy for six months. I believed every word that came out of his mouth. If you'd had the chance to meet him, you'd believe me too. I believe he's still alive, said Jamie. I shook my head, sobering myself up. What? I said. You don't agree? He said. No, I said. He's dead. He had a heart attack in front of me. The way you described it, Noddy had his own secret panic alarm, which summoned some anonymous henchmen to turn up faster than an ambulance. I saw what happened, I said. I saw some masked guys carrying his body off. I don't think they were doing it to try and revive him. I think they were disposing of him because he himself, his physical form, is some kind of evidence of all these stories he described to me. It's interesting, 
said Jamie, the way Noddy befriended you. He literally didn't say a word to anyone else in the prison system. No one else apart from you. Why do you think that is? He took a liking to me, I said. His words, not mine. He actually said, I've taken a liking to you, Frank. And that was his explanation. Was that before or after you told him you were a writer? I don't know, I said. It seems to me, said Jamie, this noddy guy befriended you because he believed that one day you'd be in a position to tell his story. And not just to me, you could write a book about him. And maybe by then he'd be long gone, but that wouldn't matter. Even if he actually did die that day, like you believe he did, his stories will live on through your work, through the book that you're inevitably going to write about him because those stories are simply too good to keep to yourself. That makes sense, I said. You might well be right about this stuff. Thanks, Jamie. I'm glad I met you. Slightly weird circumstances, but... That's okay, he said. As it happens, I'm glad you're here too. I really don't mind sleeping on the couch. Have you ever had to share a house with an ex-girlfriend? Thankfully not. I wouldn't recommend it, mate. Where did Glinda disappear to, anyway? I said. She's gone to bed. She's got work in the morning. So do I, as it happens, but never mind. It won't be the first work-based hangover I've had to deal with. Oh, I said. Well, I'm sorry for keeping you up, anyway. I've just realised I don't actually know what either of you do for a living. Nursing, he said. Both of us. That's how we met. And yes, we worked together. Ever had to work with an ex? I shook my head. Doubly awkward seeing as we live together too, he said. It's a good subject for a story, I suppose. You should write about this, mate. Maybe I will, I said. Thank you for listening. We'll continue the story in episode two. Don't miss it. It's a good one. Before that, stay tuned until after the theme song has finished if you'd like to indulge in some extra non-essential content in the footnotes section. I can't tell you anything about the footnotes section. You'll just have to check it out for yourself. If you're leaving us now and moving straight on to episode two, please also check out my website, frankburton.co.uk, where you'll find details of the other books in the Ragbag series, Everything I Am and Getting Away With It, as well as my other creative works, including my other podcast, I Like The Sound, and my recent collaboration with David Evar from Herman Dune, Not On Top, the Herman Dune podcast. It really is one of the best things I've ever done. Until next time... Latest. Serenade you tonight
love you so, and even though I can't say it, the words are in my So welcome to the footnotes section of episode one. This is the first time we're doing this. This is the completely unscripted and optional <laughs> optional extra bit at the end of Ragbag Presents. We'll see how this goes. I mean, it could go horribly wrong and well, maybe I'll never do it again. Or maybe I just won't, <laughs> just won't release it at all because uh, it'd just be a horrible experience for all the concerned. But I do, I do have... I have <laughs> It's no way to start this, is it? I'm gonna no. I'm gonna keep this in. I'm gonna keep this part in. Um, <laughs> welcome to the footnotes section of episode one of Ragbag Presents. Um, this is going to be great. It's going to be absolutely fantastic. So you just heard the new theme tune for the podcast. Um, the words are in my heart. Is the name of the song. I, I absolutely love that. I've only just discovered it. It's not a song that I was familiar with until very recently but great great song it's um i've started to have a real affinity for songs like that from that era from the 1930s in that style i really really enjoy them i've i've have done for quite a while because i've been into dennis potter's work for quite some time as well you know who dennis potter is right yeah yeah maybe you don't maybe you don't where where to start with dennis potter where to start? I would begin with The Singing Detective. I think that is, in my opinion, his greatest work. The Singing Detective... Oh, I'm going to get confused between the different versions of it because I've not seen the kind of American film adaptation with Robert Downey Jr. I kind of don't really want to see it because I'm such a big fan of the, the BBC TV series with Michael Gambon and you can't beat Michael Gambon. Come on, what a what what a great actor, and what a great show. I mean, such such a brilliant TV show. Many of Dennis Potter's works were, were kind of done in that same style with people lip syncing to these old songs from the thirties and forties. One of the great things about it is that you could you could take the whole all of the musical numbers that are in the Dennis Potter shows. Um, with all these sort of, sort of weird kind of musical routines of people lip syncing to these old songs, you could just take them out, and the story would still make sense. They're just like these optional extra bits. It's like this optional extra bit that I've created for this podcast. You can take this out; you don't need it. But there's something there's something good about it, you know. <laughs> what am I trying to say? Um, so the words are in my heart. This particular recording is by Ambrose and his orchestra. Sam Brown, is Sam Brown the vocalist maybe? I'm not sure. It's from a soundtrack to a film called Gold Diggers of 1935. I wonder I wonder what that film's like. 
It's an intriguing title, that Gold Diggers of 1935. Do they mean actual people who dig for gold or the other kind of gold diggers? I don't know. I've not seen the film, believe it or not. So um, faded into obscurity, that. But I hope it has stood the test of time in the same way that the words are in my heart has stood the test of time. That's what I think. So one of the things we're going to be doing on this footnotes uh, bit of the show is uh, exactly what I've just done, which is kind of to compile this whole kind of list of cultural references that were in the episode and uh, explore them a little bit. So that's what I'm going to do. And uh, also references to other bits of the ragbag world, the ragbag universe, if you like, Um, because it is quite complicated now. We've had the whole... We've had the 100 episodes of the Ragbag podcast in which uh, there's uh, various different narrative strands within that. And we've had the two books that have been published so far. Obviously, Brollywood will be the third book in the series. So if you're new to the Ragbag universe, you might be a little bit confused about what's going on. But I've tried to design it in a way that you can just get straight in and each story can be enjoyed as an independent thing. But one of the things I want to do in the footnotes section is just to link all of these different bits up for kind of the, the geeks among you, the uh, the super fans among you. You know, I'm sure the <laughs> I'm sure there are legions of you out there, aren't there? Yes. And actually, uh, I've broken one of my own rules with the, the very beginning of this first episode where I had to, because what I've tried to do with with all of the books and all of the kind of uh, standalone stories that I've had a, as part of the podcast is that, as I was just saying, you can just enjoy them for their own thing. Whereas I had to start this story off by recapping a bit on something that happened in the first book because this story isn't going to make sense unless you know who Noddy is and you know what happened to Noddy. Noddy had a heart attack. So I had to mention that. So the first bit of... This episode references Noddy, introduces Noddy as a character. And this all goes back to something that happened in the first book, Everything I Am. Uh, This was a scene in that book where Noddy had a heart attack. I will say no more about that yet because more will be revealed in later episodes about what actually happened on that occasion. So there we have it. Now, in terms of... Uh, kind of cultural references in this particular episode some very very mainstream references here <laughs> the wizard of oz uh very mainstream reference that although the joke is that nobody else knows what that film is you know nobody knows what the wizard of oz and you know maybe it's not maybe it's not as recognizable a uh, cultural phenomenon as it once was perhaps i don't know maybe it is maybe it's not Songs in the Key of Life, the uh, Stevie Wonder album was referenced also. Now, you know, this is a pretty well-known album, is it not? Um, And to be honest, I don't know why I said this earlier on. I said that I've never listened to a Stevie Wonder album all the way through. It's not true. I have. I'm a big fan of Stevie Wonder, obviously. Um, Songs in the Key of Life, what a fantastic record that is i only actually listened to it all the way through a few years ago actually so i'm i was always half right by saying <laughs> that i hadn't fully listened to it because it took me quite a while but there's so many classic songs on that album so many of them so many classic songs you listen to it all the way through and you say, oh this is on it as well it's like every single it it 
it sounds very much like a kind of a greatest hits album, but it's not a greatest hits album. It's it's just an album. You know, it's one of those where there's so many classic songs on one album. You know, then the following year he will have brought another album out probably. I don't know I don't know what the regularity of the Stevie Wonder albums were actually, but obviously quite a prolific guy altogether. Inner Visions is my favourite one, in case you're wondering. That was the first one that I really got into. I think I was a teenager when I got into that and it kind of opened up a whole world actually. So yeah, Stevie Wonder's Inner Visions is one of those kind of uh, gateway drug albums for me is that opened up a whole world from there once I got into Inner Visions I started listening to kind of other things that were slightly adjacent to that but slightly more slightly darker and more political like Gil Scott Heron and all sorts of things like that it opens up opened up a lot of doors really um so yeah that's uh if, if you haven't heard Inner Visions by the way the Stevie Wonder album oh you're in for a trip it's fantastic um uh, Tentcast, <laughs> very mainstream reference for you there. Tentcast. Um, uh, obviously, within the Tentcast thing, there was a, a guy talking about Indiana Jones, Raiders, uh, and Temple of Doom. Obviously, Raiders of a Lost Dark and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. I, I think that's the title of the second Indiana Jones films. Do you ever get um, roped into these conversations, by the way, listeners? <laughs> Which is the best Indiana Jones film? Is it Raiders or is it Temple of Doom or Last Crusade or what? You know, you find yourself getting roped into these discussions sometimes. I'm, I'm not, you know, I haven't got much to say on this subject. It's kind of like, as much as I enjoyed those films when I was a kid, I think they are basically the same film, are they not? <laughs> I'm playing devil's advocate a little bit here, but they... The Indiana Jones films are basically the same film, <laughs> from re, uh, with with slight different variations. It's like you know what what's the best James Bond film? It's difficult to say because they are all basically the same film. Uh, <laughs> and I, I've I'm just saying that to kind of wind people up, really, you know. But but it is actually my opinion. I do think that you know it's, it's like it's the same with the super. It's the same with all these kind of franchises. You know, what's the best Spider-Man film? It's, they're all they're all the same film. So it's difficult to judge exactly which is the best one. I don't know. I will I will plumb for I will go for the the one with um, Friedrich from The Sound of Music. You know the little kid who played Friedrich in The Sound of Music. He was kind of the first the first movie. Spider-Man in the 1970s. Do you know that? Uh, yeah. I remember, I've, I've seen it, I, d- I don't remember anything about the film. I just remember Friedrich from The Sound of Music was in it. Um, I don't know whether it was good or not. Well, it's just the same as all the other ones, isn't it? I'm playing devil's advocate here is what I'm doing. Devil's advocate. Um, Satan, give him a chance. Oh, dear. Um, so, oh, there, there is, of course, um, a, another reference to a superhero movie. That's uh, the Benedict Cumberbatch movie, Doctor Strange. That was in this episode as well. Um, David Bowie was uh, another mainstream. I mean, you know, everybody, everyone knows who David Bowie is, don't they? Or do they? That is an interesting question. I don't think everybody does know who David Bowie is. And there probably were quite a few people who heard the news in it, oh yeah it was 2016 when he died because that was the year when 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 everyone died that year well not everyone obviously but a, a huge number of famous people died in the year 2016 
uh, Bowie being one of them, Prince being another one, and um, you know quite quite a few people I expect of maybe the younger generations who saw that on the news that David Bowie's died probably just thought who who's that you know that is what I expect you know and obviously within this episode we've discussed the strange nature of that of that particular figure of David Bowie that he's like extremely successful but also not that many people know who he is up you know so it's one of those things, isn't it? It's a strange kind of... Um, it must be quite a nice place to be. I'd, I'd quite like to... If I was going to choose my level of fame, um, you know, I don't really care that much about being successful in, in terms of, like, commercially successful or anything like that. But I, I, if you gave me the choice, I'd I'd quite like to be at that level that David Bowie was at, whereas, it, it, like, loads of people think that you're great, but... You can probably just walk down the street and a lot of people just wouldn't recognise you, you know. <laughs> One of those things. It'd be, it'd be a nice nice kind of best best of both worlds type thing, I reckon. Or am I doing him a disservice there? Because I think he probably, he probably did get mobbed in the street on occasions, I expect. But then again, probably not very often. I don't know. If he was just wearing... If he was wearing his Ziggy Stardust get-up, then, <laughs> then he would. But... You know, if he was just wearing jeans and a T-shirt, you wouldn't necessarily know it was him. Here's a little uh, celebrity anecdote for you. I once stood behind Robert Smith from The Cure in the post office in Bognor Regis. He's, he's a, uh, he lives in Bognor Regis on the south coast of England. And um, I knew it was Robert Smith because he was dressed as Robert Smith. He had his hair all done up. He had the makeup on. The whole, the whole thing. He must just walk around like that all the time. He was in front of me at the post office at eleven o'clock on a Saturday morning, and he had the full makeup on, <laughs> and his hair was all kind of like spiked up and that. So yeah, I don't know. You know, I was <laughs> just <laughs> just collecting a parcel. Hello, Robert Smith. I'm collecting a parcel. Um, yeah, I didn't say anything to him. I didn't know. Don't know what I would say. You know. What would you say if you would stood behind Robert Smith in the post office? What would you say to him? I'm not I'm, I'm not, not a huge fan of The Cure. I never really got into them. So it wasn't like I was really excited about it. I, I just really liked the fact that he was dressed like that. <laughs> Slightly more obscure reference, I guess, would be H.P. Lovecraft, which um, another cultural figure who, who came up. And, and again, that that is actually true. I've not read any... H.P. Lovecraft properly. I've kind of read bits of it, and I can kind of appreciate the writing for what it is. But yeah, I've never kind of got round to properly investigating it. It's one of those people who, people who are really into him, just really, really dig it, and are really kind of into the whole H.P. Lovecraft thing. But yeah, as of yet, I've I've not got round to um, checking out the Lovecraft properly myself. Maybe I will do one day. Who knows? Oh, and the, the, the final kind of cultural reference was kind of um, obliquely um, referenced, I guess. It was the film that Benedict was recording in New Zealand. Remember, he was in New Zealand. He was quarantined in New Zealand, wasn't he? Um, the film that he was making uh, at that time, as uh, many of you may have ascertained already, it was a very successful movie. It was uh, Power of the Dog. 
So there you go. They they had to halt the production of it due to COVID restrictions, etc. So there you have it. I have I have seen Power of the Dog. Yeah, didn't really <laughs> didn't really like it. I know it was very um. It won lots of awards, and uh, you know the interesting thing about that film is that you know it's it's technically kind of perfect. You know, it's it's great. Great performances, great cast, great direction, great cinematography. Um, I guess it's a great script. Is it a great script? I'm not sure. But there's uh, something about it just, just didn't just didn't hang together for me at all. I didn't enjoy it. And I didn't think... I, I understood what they were trying to do, but it just didn't work for me at all. Maybe it was the script. Maybe the script wasn't up to scratch something about it but i think i can't put my finger on what it is i think it's one of those things that is kind of technically perfect and yet it doesn't work for me at the very least obviously it works for a lot of people a lot of film critics and stuff like that they seem to enjoy it but i didn't and i I couldn't explain to you why that is it kind of got me thinking about things that are technically excellent but just don't do the business for me you know, shall we? Uh, shall I mention a couple of them? The music of Neil Young. Just never got into it. Never got into Neil Young. And uh, even though he's um, a lot, a lot of people who like the same kind of music as me are really into Neil Young. And a lot of the music that I listen to, are people who have been influenced by Neil Young. And I don't know what it is. I just, I just, uh, I just don't get on with it. I just can't. There are individual songs that I can appreciate, but. Listening to a whole album, I just can't do it. Same would go for Bob Dylan, actually. I mean, I I can really appreciate Bob Dylan. And, you know, I would describe him as a genius, as many people do. But I just can't get through a whole album. (laughs) There's something about it, I just can't... can't, It just doesn't do it for me. After a while, I I can listen, I can appreciate a, a, a Bob Dylan song. I can appreciate the great artistry that's gone into producing that and then you know listen to an album then another song comes on and then oh okay i can i can appreciate that one as well yeah okay i get i get the point now mate you know (laughs) don't know don't know what it is don't know what it is it's something about also the the idea of um things being technically excellent it isn't necessarily a good thing i mean i've always, always preferred punk rock to heavy metal you know generally you know a lot of these heavy metal bands are just highly skilled musicians. And, you know, you can listen to it and appreciate the fact that they have put a huge amount of work into this and are highly technically skilled in terms of just great musicians. But it just, I just don't, I just don't like it. <laughs> I prefer to listen to a punk rock song with a guy playing three chords. There's something more relatable to that than me. I'd this is a big subject. I could drone on about it for a long time, but you know, it's something about punk, the fact that anybody can make a punk record. Whereas, you know, if you want to join Metallica, you would have to <laughs> study guitar for many, many years before they would consider giving you an audition. I don't think I would want to join Metallica though. It's not, it's just not my back. It's not my kind of thing, but there you go. It's another example of things that are technically excellent, but just don't do the business. Uh, Frasier, the sitcom. (laughs) 
it's i can appreciate it I've, I've never laughed at it i've watched it i've i've kind of um i've watched it and i've i've listened to the jokes and i thought that that is a great joke i didn't laugh but i can appreciate the the um the technical skill that has gone into producing the joke and it was um it was d the delivery behind the joke was great as well it was perfectly timed and there's something about it. i don't know don't know what it is just never got on with Frasier. This is going to wind people up as well because a lot of people absolutely love it and think it's the greatest sitcom of all time. I've honestly, I've never laughed at it. I've tried. I've, I've, uh, I've tried getting into it because people have said that that it's great, and there's something about it that just just gets on my nerves. Also, I think it's something to do with the characters. I guess I think because the the Frasier, the character, and his brother, the Niles, the brother. One of their defining characteristics is the quite kind of snobbish. It's not the show isn't glorifying the idea of snobbery in any way. It's making fun of it. But the fact that the snobbery is there is. For me, I think snobbery is just the most deplorable characteristic <laughs> that you could have. You know, you know, it's up there with being a serial killer. You know, it's uh, it's a deplorable characteristic even though they're not supposed to be kind of role model citizens by any means. And, you know, many of the great sitcom characters are really horrible human beings. Take as a as an adjacent kind of example, you know, George Costanza in Seinfeld is just a completely self-serving and uh, just, just generally a really horrible guy, but um, is really, really funny. And that just makes it okay. You know, that's, uh, <laughs> that's, you keep watching, you want to see what he's doing, what, what crazy idea is he come up with next? And, you know, how, how petty is he going to be about, about this little minor thing that's gone wrong? He's going to completely lose his rag over something stupid and it's going to be hilarious, you know? Um, so I'm not saying that, that sitcom characters have to be great people, you know, the opposite really the the worse they are the funnier they are really but but it's something about something about Frasier that just didn't do it I don't, I don't know I I assume it's something to do with that something to do with that particular thing that gets my goat and uh yeah I don't know may, maybe it's one of those things just one of those things it just doesn't doesn't do it for me but I'm you know I'm trying to produce my own sitcom at the moment uh, so watch this space for that. But one of the things that I've realized, I think, about the genre of situation comedy is that the situation is largely irrelevant, really, in terms of the appeal. In terms, you know, a sitcom could be set anywhere. If it's funny, then it's good. You know, it doesn't really matter where it's set. So it's not really about the situation. It's about the characters. And you want those characters to be people who you would like to spend time with. I keep coming back to Seinfeld because I think I like spending time with those people, even even though if I was friends with them, they'd probably stab me in the back as soon as I turned around, you know. But I'm not saying I want to be friends with them. I just want to spend time in their company because they're so funny and, and I just want to see what they do next. You know, for me, I, th I think it's one of the reasons why I, I'd never really got on with Friends, the sitcom. Because I think the idea behind that is that you want to be their friend. You know, these are some people that not only do you want to spend time in their company, but you want to be their friend. 
And, you know, really, I think the characters in Friends are quite deplorable people as well. Quite narcissistic and kind of self-interested. But they are dressed up in a way that makes them appear to be role models. And I never really got past that. I never really got into Friends, even even though the... I have I have I've laughed at Friends quite a lot. There's some great jokes in there and stuff like that, and um, in a way that I haven't laughed at Frasier. But for for me, Friends never really did it for me because I didn't get on with the characters. I just I don't want to spend time with those people. If I met those people in real life, I would I've crossed the street to avoid them. <laughs> I think they're just horrible people. But you know the fact that they're dressed up as as being great people. They're 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 kind of on the same level of narcissism as the Seinfeld characters, but the difference is that the Seinfeld characters don't pretend to be, they don't pretend to be great people. I think that's the difference. Maybe I'm reading too much into all of this stuff, but I'm just saying that this is situation comedy. This is what we want from situation comedy. We want to spend time with some funny people, regardless of how nice they are. You wouldn't you wouldn't want to necessarily be friends with uh, Edmund Blackadder, for example, but uh, but he's a funny guy, right? You you want to you want to spend time in his company and what see what he does next, and see what he says next, see see what kind of great line he comes up with. What else can I tell you about? A bit while we're on the subjects of TV, I've been watching Better Call Saul. Um, catching up on that, on the I've got as far as the the latest season, season six. Just started that now, and uh, yeah, great, great TV show. Really love it. Um, I think it's better than Breaking Bad. I'm one of those people who have um, that opinion that it is superior to the thing that it is the prequel to, which I've not encountered that before. I think definitely a candidate for best prequel of all time. Usually, I, I can't think. Actually, off the top of my head, I can't think of a prequel that I liked. No, no, I can't think of a single one. Can't think of a single one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think Better Call Saul is great. And um, an interesting thing as a British viewer, kind of getting these little bits of American culture that uh, don't necessarily translate properly across the Atlantic. Like, um, there's a whole thing. There's there's a whole like series. I think it's a series of episodes. It goes on for quite a while anyway. Where he, uh, I think in like season like four or or five maybe, where he's um trying to sell advertising, like TV advertising, because he's bought too much of it for himself, and he's trying to kind of flog it to all these local businesses, and yeah, just this. Uh, it must be a very kind of American thing. This kind of having like a local shop that advertises on kind of local tv station because we don't have the uk we don't have local tv stations at all so that's it's not a thing that exists over here so the idea of having like a guy from down the road on the tv advertising his shop and then you can watch him on the tv and then you can go down to his shop and say hey i saw you on the tv that's uh just uh it's like a real alien concept to someone in the United Kingdom because it, there's there's just no equivalent of that at all. In uh, the, 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 there is for radio, I guess, for kind of local radio stuff. Or you used to in the old days. I think now nowadays probably local radio is just kind of you know adverts for 
phone companies and stuff like that. Back in the day, it used to be um, Gary's Butcher's Shop from down the road. <laughs> Come and get uh, 50% discount on sausages from, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. But yeah, TV is a different game, isn't it? Uh, I'd like to come up with some great insight on into why I think Better Call Saul is a great TV show, but um, maybe that's a subject for another time. I probably have to make some notes about it rather than just talking off the top of my head. But I, I, I will say this: that um, I think one of the reasons why it is better than the thing that it is the prequel to is that there's so much kind of subtlety. And um, here's here's a little compare and contrast thing that you can do with the two shows. So I really like Breaking Bad, by the way. I'm not dissing it. But I think uh, one of the problems I had with it that I think the premise was quite fundamentally flawed in that, well, first of all, I think it would be a better show if Walter White wasn't dying of cancer. You just don't need that element of it at all, I don't think. It's just a contrivance. You can see it, and you can see it's a contrivance that they they want this guy to become this kind of big drug dealer. And he needs to have a reason why he's doing it. So he's dying of cancer, so he wants to become this kind of drug dealer so that he can make some money to leave behind for his wife and his son. And... I just think it would have been better if he just decided to become a drug dealer <laughs> because he thought that would be a good idea. He doesn't need to be dying of cancer. He can just uh, he can just decide that that's what he wants to do. I think it makes it more palatable, I guess. It makes it more kind of uh, easy to relate to, I guess, for a mainstream audience. But I do like the way that they've... As, I guess this is kind of a spoiler, but kind of in the final episode of Breaking Bad, where he, Walter is kind of... Uh, changed his identity and they, but then he comes back to see his wife he says something like you probably think I'm going to say that I did all of this for you but it's not true I didn't I did it all for me because I was good at it and I enjoyed it and that that's great I think that kind of flipped that premise on its head a little bit this this um because the whole foundation of the show was the fact that he was dying of cancer and he wanted to provide for his family. And, you know, it, he ended up just not doing that. Just just doing it because he wanted to do it. I, d I just don't think they need that element. And and also the, the hugely contrived element of that initial premise is the fact that Walter is being investigated by a guy who happens coincidentally to be his brother-in-law. It coincidentally happens to be his brother-in-law. And he comes round to his house all the time and they have barbecues together and all this sort of thing. Such a contrivance. <laughs> such a huge contrivance. But, you know, that being said, you do get past that. You, you can get past it. You can get past the fact that that he's being investigated by his brother-in-law because it's so well done so even though there's a problem in my opinion with the initial premise of the show they do it they do it so well that they get away with it and it's so well done that it is a great tv show but going back to the kind of walter white cancer thing it's kind of one of the reasons why better call Saul is such a good show is that 
it's never very clear kind of what the character's motivations are for doing stuff. You're never quite sure what... I, I think the reason why Jimmy's such a great character is that you're never quite sure why he's doing what he's doing. Like, you get the impression that there's certain things that he does kind of with the whole feud that he's having with his brother and he's kind of getting back at his brother and stuff like that. And you can kind of understand what his motivations are there a bit. But then there's other times where it's kind of, why are you doing, why are you doing that? Why are you behaving in that way? And why are you, why are you trying to, <laughs> why are you trying to kind of scam this guy for no reason where you, you could take an easier route? and do something else so it's not just that character it's the other characters as well you're not entirely sure why these people are behaving in this particular way and that that's what that's what i mean when i say salty and, and that's what i mean when i say you don't need to be dying of cancer in order to become a drug dealer you can just become a drug dealer <laughs> and then it becomes kind of um an intriguing thing as to why why has this person done that or why are they doing this you know this is what I like and this is what I try to do in, in my writing is just to have people doing crazy stuff but not necessarily explaining why it is that they're doing it and being kind of ambiguous about a person's intentions in behaving a certain way. And maybe you will get an explanation at some point and maybe you won't. It's more about it's more about the thing, it's more about the experience of what is happening right now in the story and not looking at the motivations, not looking at the backstory, just looking at what's happening right now in the story. I think that's quite important as well, is just to kind of focus on, it doesn't matter why these things are happening, the fact is that these things are happening, so let's just have a look at this very moment right now and uh, how is this character reacting to this situation and what are they going to do in this situation so uh there you go we've talked a lot about tv this time haven't we so maybe next time i'll focus on a different art form who knows this is um the unscripted part of the show it could go anywhere but um it's been enjoyable hasn't it i've um been able to talk to you about some stuff that uh, has been on my mind and um yeah we've been through all of the uh references i think we've done everything that we need to do so Without further ado, let's uh, let's call this a day and then we'll move straight on to episode two. Thank you very much, everyone. I'll see you in episode two.